The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 91 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 29th of September, 2021 from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, Captain Roger joins us, and we are excited to hear all about his recent jet-setting adventure. We also discuss how President Biden has tapped a retired airline captain to lead the U.S. mission to the International Civil Aviation Organization. We are also joined by a special guest today. The Squawk Ident crew and I will have the honor in speaking with an aviator whose journey is nothing shy of spectacular. He holds an MBA in Information Systems Management, a Master's in Military Arts and Sciences, and International Relations, to name just a few of his incredible list of academic achievements. Not long ago, he was the commander of the 62nd Operations Group at Joint Bases Lewis and McCord in Washington. That is where he ensured the combat readiness of approximately 700 active duty military and civilian personnel in four squadrons operating 48 C-17A Globemaster III aircraft. From his service to our country as an Air Force commander to his experiences as a civil 737 pilot at Domestic Air, Colonel Mark Furman will share his journey in aviation with us. All this and more aboard Flight 91 of the Squawk Ident Podcast. <laughs> one take. Well played. First. Did you just do that in all one take? Holy crap. I'm not sure he no. even took a breath took a breath during that he like he was so scared it normally Usually takes we're like, like three takes <laughs> you were like take two take three season take four. season pro man well done <laughs> all right now that our pre-flight is complete let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines flight 91 is officially underway Assisting at the controls today is a superb aviator and Squawk Ident podcast co-host. He is a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech and RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently an Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his ranch, where his aircon is still on the fritz and the lightning strikes are striking hard. From somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, help us in welcoming to the show our very own Rob D. Rob, how are you doing? What's up, Tony? Good to be back, man. Ready to get this show on the road. This is going to be a good one. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I got excited. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier in the week about leadership. Uh, some yep. events have happened out on the flight line for myself, for all of us, mm-hmm. actually. And we we were kind of contemplating what that means. and. And Rob, you called me and said, you know, I got somebody we can talk to on the show. I was, <laughs> I was absolutely stoked. Yeah. So I'm yeah, looking forward gonna, to it. He's got a great story to share with us, and I'm sure our listeners will definitely appreciate it. 
Yeah. And, you know, have you been flying much since the last show? Yeah, I kind of lined up a couple trips back to back to, uh, as always, make room for volleyball here at, here at home. So um, I just got back from a uh, four-day trip, backed up by a two-day trip. Um, but the uh, the great thing about it was I've got to spend a whole day in Boise, Idaho. Man, that place is gorgeous, man. Temperature was just right. Uh, a lot of great choices for food. And um, I was flying with a great captain. And so, you know, that just topped it all off. So, yeah, yeah. it was a good time, man. Yeah, this That's time of year, trip. Idaho, I mean, this is, yeah. this is where you can go mountain biking and hiking. Oh, it's perfect. And, oh, my gosh. It's beautiful. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to leave. It, it, was, it was tough to say, to goodbye, say goodbye, but <laughs> anyway, got a life to live. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's up with the air con? Oh, dude, man. I, I have, uh, my air conditioning has been on the fritz for a little over a month now. Uh, what it comes down to is basically they had to order a part, um, and it's taken them a little while to get it. So, um, finally it's here. They're supposed to come in tomorrow and put it in and we'll get some relief from this, uh, temperature and humidity. Although, it, you know, the temperature has gone, gone down quite a bit over here. Luckily I have two AC systems in this house. So the, uh, the main living areas are, are, are cool and comfortable, but, uh, the kids' rooms upstairs are a little toasty and warm and kind of feels like a sauna up there. So yeah. we've got them we've got them relocated down here to the spare bedroom and they're they're okay. But I really <laughs> like to get that thing fixed because uh my podcast studio is upstairs um and I can't do it up there right now. So <laughs> Yeah. You'd be dying. <laughs> feel, like up a, there. <laughs> feel like a Bigram yoga studio <laughs> doing doing a podcast. Yeah. Well, we're we're absolutely excited to have you join us again, Rob. Thank you so much. Uh, Kyle couldn't make Good it to today. Here. He's got uh, you know, just juggling a mountain of of things yeah. on his honeydew list. He actually sent me a text message with the items on his honeydew list and and <laughs> <laughs> it's got to yeah. be like 50 things on this handwritten yeah. list. And I will, oh, dude, he's like, you want to come help me? <laughs> yeah, that post move he's doing is uh, is certainly certainly keeping him busy. And then, of course, you know, he had some personal issues he had to deal with. So yeah. uh, we'll get him back soon. I'm sure uh, once we do, it's going to be good to hear from him. Absolutely. Well, also joining us today is another exceptional aviator. He's a professional CFI, double IMEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a Kinger instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us fresh off his global flight adventure, where he hobnobbed with the fashionistas fresh off of the runways at Milan's Fashion Week. Please help us in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's good to be back. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I've had a lot going on, so I haven't been around the last, I don't even know how many shows now, actually. Yeah, you know, you were telling me that you you were spending, what, three, four weeks planning this one trip, the, the owners of the uh, of the conglomerate, the air, airplanes <laughs> that they all own, uh, they were planning this trip over to, to Croatia and to Italy. And I mean, what, what were all your stops? Yeah, it was a, the planning, you know, obviously it wasn't three weeks solid of planning, but it's there's certain things to, to kind of the preparation for it definitely was over a month out. And then it, you, you doing more and more as you get closer to make sure, especially in this day and age, um, you know, Europe in the middle of the planning is when Europe kind of we, we went off the safe list of travel for Europe and then each individual country in Europe could change things and it was changing day by day and country by country 
And so the whole thing definitely turned into an exercise of um, researching different countries' travel pages. And, and, you know, specifically back to your question, where'd we go? We went to Croatia um, and then we also went to Italy, but then we also had a stop in Ireland um, with, with an overnight just to kind of to break the trip up. And so it was Ireland, Croatia, and Italy and the rules and regulations and, you know, testing and vaccinations and this and that and travel forms. Uh, uh so yeah, the, I was, um, quite a, a lot of logistics that go, <laughs> that go into that exactly. whole thing. Yeah. And that's not to mention then once you land and now you're going to stay somewhere, you know, what's going to happen there next. Unfortunately, that was actually outside of my purview of responsibility. I was just making sure that I, I guess we didn't get detained in Europe from an aviation standpoint. <laughs> okay. Uh, that sounds re- re- relatively mysterious. <laughs> I might have, you know, <laughs> exaggerated that a little bit, but you know, Europe is a little bit different than than the U.S. in terms of in terms of aviation. Um, we're actually fairly lax over here in terms of, you know, flying within the country. We have so many airports and, and the FAA is actually um, somewhat forgiving when it comes to flying international. We don't get ramp checked all the time, whereas that's a much bigger uh, possibility in Europe mm. than it is actually here. And um, the ICAO rules are slightly different than the FAA and and trying to make sure that you're, you're balancing all that. So in case you get a SAFA check. Mm. You don't get detained. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I'm glad you were in charge of the logistics because I know that... uh, That makes one of us. Yeah. (laughs) I I know you're thorough. (laughs) I think that's why I I I was kind of entrusted with that responsibility. You know, it's a blessing and a curse. I can't decide which one at which time, but... Yeah. um, Well, you sent us some audio feedback and video feedback that we played on the last show, and I thank you for that. Uh, And unfortunately, you were, I think you said, just landing in in uh, rome or getting off the train in rome right when we were recording <laughs> yeah that was i have to admit that was pretty funny i we had just landed in one of the in or no what where i guess we had we were landed in florence and then we had taken the train down to rome like the next day and i had just gotten off the train the metro in rome and had just walked out at the Coliseum and you texted me, Hey, we're about to start. Are you at the hotel? And I'm just looking it up at this 2000 year old Coliseum. No, no, Tony, I'm not at the hotel. Here, this is what I'm looking at. Yeah. The timing was kind of funny as I think that the, the timing for my response to you with the picture, cause I sent you a picture didn't work out because my um, phone plan and the data plan in order to send a picture, I think it was like 20 minutes later, but it was pretty funny for me, like literally walking out and just being like, you step out of the underground metro yeah. and you are staring up at the Coliseum and then you're texting me at the same time. And it was just pretty funny. Yeah. Cool. The Italian <laughs> wants to know if I can be on a, a podcast in America. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm in Italy. <laughs> Now's not a good time for me. Yeah. Well, you know, you sent us a little bit later in the evening, you sent us some video and I want to just play that uh, for the viewers and the listeners now. Sure. All right. Cool. here at the Trevi Fountain. Captain Tony wanted me to uh, do a short video with myself here. So it'll be real short. 
pretty crowded. Uh, about, I don't know, I don't know what time it is. I think it's about 9.30 or so at night here in Rome. We got here earlier this afternoon. This short video of myself. I told the guys earlier this evening. It's almost hard to believe that they pay me to do stuff like this, but definitely having a good time. And looking forward to seeing guys when I get home. And you know what I especially uh, liked about that video is the uh, attractive girl sitting on the stump that happened to be in the shot like four or five times. (laughs) 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 Ciao, Bella. How are you doing? (laughs) I say nothing. Just saying. Just saying. There was a lot of uh, beautiful uh, Italian things to see. We read. We uh, refer to it as the uh, talent. Ta- a very talented area. Yes. Maybe. Uh, that was uh, uh, Trinity Fountain. Yes. Uh, near the Spanish Steps. I've, I've been there myself. Beautiful spot. Absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely and, and I know nice. what you mean by uh, stepping out of the doors to the metro, out of the metro and seeing the Coliseum is pretty amazing. Yes. It, it was. You come yeah. out of the metro and you have, no, I, I had no idea it was coming. I stepped out and just, bam. Yeah. Boom. Huge. <laughs> Holy right there. crap. There it is. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely, definitely pretty worth amazing. Doing, worth doing. Yeah. Yep. And I'm really happy that you had that opportunity, Roger, uh, to experience that. You know, we're also just very excited because today our featured guest is a recipient of the Bronze Star Medal, the Humanitarian Service Medal, and the NATO Medal, just to name a few. His military deployments included expeditionary airlift squadron duties and numerous C-17A combat missions in support of both Operations Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. He has also served a combat tour as air advisor to the Afghan Ministry of Defense for the International Security Assistance Force and later Operation Resolute Support. He currently is enjoying military retirement as a Boeing 737 pilot for an airline we here on the show like to call Domestic Air. Help us in welcoming to the show, Colonel Mark Furman. Mark, it is a pleasure to have you, and thank you for your service. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for your support. So, you know, I'm just so excited to have you on the show uh, because we were talking a, a little bit about leadership earlier in the week, and what a just better guest to help represent that. I was looking over some of your uh, your resume, really, your your history and all your achievements and accolades. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was nervous. I was nervous to have you on. And I still am very nervous to have you on the show. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. Well, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. So here on the show, uh, we at Squawk Ident try to focus on the journey of today's aviator and all the varied backgrounds that the person next to you on the flight deck could have. I mean, you really truly don't know who you're flying with and and the battles that they've fought to get here uh, into this career field, this fantastic career in aviation. And that's something that was always of interest to me. And to have you on, I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey. So let's get right into it. When did your aviation journey begin? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a military family, so it's funny you mentioned uh, Robbie earlier. We go way back, like you said. Uh, his dad was in the Navy. My dad was in the Air Force. And uh, so that brought us to uh, Newport, Rhode Island at the time. 
Uh, my dad was a career aviator. He was a navigator in the EB-66 uh, during Vietnam, flew 100 combat missions, came back, went to pilot training. And then he flew the F-106 and transitioned to the F-15. And uh, uh, in those years that Robbie and I knew each other, he, I was watching him win the, those national racquetball championships you were talking about. We used to go down in there and uh, destroy the racquetball court. This guy was hitting 160 mile an hour serves. So essentially we would play during the day until all the balls broke with my brother, uh, Tom. And, and if we didn't break him, it was Robbie. But uh, Dude, I it, had to hit him that hard because you would run every ball down. So I had to hit <laughs> it harder to get it by you. <laughs> I had to run it down because I didn't know what I was doing on the court and be in a good position. So I would just, I would have to dive to get it served. But, uh, so we, we kind of grew up. Uh, together in that sense is, uh, you know, that's leading out of high school and into college. But uh, interestingly, you know, we probably had some influence about Robbie joining the military at the time, you know, and I, so I would, I would give that to my dad uh, for myself, my brother and Robbie. And of course, his dad was in the military too. So it would have been a positive influence. But uh, 25 years later, it was Robbie that took on the role of helping me get into an airline. So it, it came full circle and just a pretty cool, uh, a pretty cool experience all around. But, uh, you know, uh, we're happy with where we are now, I think, but uh, it, we helped each other along the way. So that influence with my dad certainly was huge. And uh, during college, I uh, was coming to the realization that I'm going to be out on my own here quick and, and what am I going to do? And uh I, I'll tell you, my sophomore year in high school, I was at, in Wittburg, Germany. The side window I blame for my poor grade in uh, geometry because out the side window was the runway to to uh, Wittburg Air Force Base, and they would have you know an F-15 maybe doing a uh, air show demo profile outside the window, you know, just screaming across the runway, you know, pulling G's and getting airborne and. You know, needless to say, my grade wasn't that good, but I believe it on that. But I certainly had a spark of, you know, knew that that was cool and something I would love to do. And um, the obvious choice became uh, as to what I'm going to do for a career. It just very comfortable after growing up in the military that, that I would that I would do that myself. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And so you you progressed, you know, through grade school and you mentioned you were in Germany. Were you doing a lot of these uh, living abroad assignments or were you mainly in Germany for the growing up? We were now I, uh, I was the cliche military high school student in that I had four high schools in two years, uh, from my junior to senior year. So, you know, typically they say, you don't want to leave your senior year. Well, I did that twice in my senior year alone, but, uh, I was in Fort Walton beach, Florida, you know, dad assigned to Eglin air force base at the time. For six months of that and then well i was there two and a half years but six months of my junior year then we moved to rome italy so there to oh. your experience in rome i got to see that same thing you know walking out and seeing the coliseum and the trevi fountain the spanish steps and the forums and you know when i left fort walton beach i was thinking i don't want to leave here i'm in the you know beach town with my friends and you know high school chasing girls that kind Absolutely. of thing <laughs> So why would I want to leave? And uh, at that point, I was thinking, why am I even taking a Spanish class? You know, we speak English here. However, 
two days into Rome, Italy, I was in awe of what I was seeing, you know, the history and everything. And I was very grateful that I had a very rudimentary and a very rudimentary understanding of Spanish because I had to use that to claw and fight our way to some kind of understanding if I wanted to communicate with anybody. It was definitely an immersion. So got a huge uh, respect for that. But yeah, Rome, Italy for six months. Then we were in Germany, uh, Bitburg, and then Ramstein. So all around Europe, really. So it was, it was fantastic. I wouldn't trade it. And so, you know, people say, oh my gosh, before high school is two years. I, I wouldn't trade it. It was fantastic. Yeah, I can only imagine the experiences. You know, you're a, a global uh, jet setter and you're still in, in high school. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I didn't, I didn't leave. Uh, I took u- courses at University of Maryland overseas because it was, in my, in my mind, I was like, why would I go back to the United States right now? I'm living in Europe. So that was fantastic. Yeah. And you ended up in uh, in Buffalo State College, right? Uh, I did. So my parents are both from Buffalo, New York. And so uh, I did the two years in uh, Sembach and Bedburg, really, for the University of Maryland courses. And then it was time for my brother to go in as a freshman. And my parents basically said, pick a SUNY school you know, somewhere in the New York so that we could not pay the state tuition uh, or not pay the uh, out-of-state tuition. Right. And uh they were both from Buffalo, so it made it easy. We had a lot of family around too, cousins and that. My parents were still living in Europe, so now we had a support system in the Buffalo State. Yeah, and and what at what point did you decide that you were going to join a military service life? Was that after you graduated from college, or was it something that you had started? No, it under? was. It, it dawned on me pretty quick there as I was. You know, we were away from my parents. Obviously, they were in Europe. And then uh, I think about my junior year beginning, I started just coming to the conclusion that, hey, I'm going to be on the street in two years here. What am I going to do? And uh, it's actually my sister that mentioned it. She, I, I was kind of pondering what I was going to do for a living. And uh, she said, what do, you, what do you mean? What are you going to do? Just join the Air Force, you know? And <laughs> it kind of clicked that that was a very comfortable idea. And uh, so I kind of started pursuing it from there, you know, talking to recruiters and kind of making that move. Yeah. And, and I actually substitute taught for uh, uh, six months while I was waiting for an officer's training school class. Oh, that was, that was rough, rougher than any military assignment right there. Six <laughs> great kids. Uh, <laughs> I, I literally had them, uh, uh, you know, a, a bunch of kids running around in circles and I must close the door. I was like, well, as long as nobody gets hurt, I'm out of here in 45 minutes. I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think uh, teachers of any uh, high school or junior high curriculum, deserve a little extra hazard pay for that that's for sure yeah, definitely. absolutely <laughs> yeah actually yeah. I, I actually learned some leadership lessons from my sister uh, who is doing the uh the school program at the school and i said look these kids are running out of control what do i do and she she had some pretty good sage advice you know it was funny actually she said the the desk is the center of the room do not leave it you know, I'm like, okay, I'm writing this stuff down. And she's like, you know, put the rules on the board. It shows that you've been around the block and they understand that you, they're not going to get away with it much. Know the kids' names so that you can call a kid out. And then the greatest was we would, if somebody was an issue like Jeffrey, hey, Jeffrey is having trouble today, class. Can you uh, give him a little space while he figures it out? And the whole class kind of turns on Jeffrey and gets everything in line. It was genius. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Gotta write these things down. <laughs> I know, oh, man. I was going to say. <laughs> Holy that's crap. exactly what I did. It, it got me through that phase uh, before I got in the military. Yeah. So here you were in your in your early twenties, and you're already 
in a position where you had to really learn how to manage the troops, you know, yeah, uh, per yeah, se. In a sense. Yeah. Uh, the kids. An eye opener. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, you later went on to get a master's in business administration, information system management over at Webster University. Um, how, how did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to pursue education to the master's level? Well, you know, uh, they highly encourage that in the Air Force. Uh, I came in and out of college and I thought I'd done all the studying I need to do. I earned a bachelor's degree, so I kind of thought I was done. And I was in the my flight commander's office, essentially the branch chief's office, who was a civilian named Roland Millett. Uh, he sat me down and I had only been in the military for weeks now, officially, and I'm in my new assignment at a communication squadron. And he said, I need to talk to you about getting your master's degree. And, you know, my jaw almost hit the floor because I was like, are you kidding? I just I just got through four years of school. I thought I was going to take a break and learn my job, you know. But uh, I credit him because, you know, I, I dutifully started a course in the master's degree and it was that information systems management. And I guess one thing that I've, I'm not good at a lot of things, but if I start something, I feel obligated to grind it out, you know? So he, he got me started on it. I had several friends that also started their degree and they kind of fizzled out on it because they were doing other things. But 10 years later, uh, it became a big deal because as you try to turn, as you're turning major, it's something I look at. They want to see a master's degree in your portfolio, essentially, uh, if it's, it's an identifier. And uh, I had all kinds of friends at that point scrambling to get their master's degree knocked out before that decision point. And uh, it, their, their records would be evaluated. But uh, thanks to Mr. Millette, who put it on me early, I was already done. So that was huge. Yeah. So, so I credit him for having the, you know, the foresight and in, in taking care of me essentially as, as, as yeah. a boss. Yeah, it's, I think when we've talked about mentorship uh, quite a bit here over the years on, on our show and yep. how important it is. And I've also had uh, individuals send me feedback saying, well, I don't necessarily have a mentor in my life. I don't have that opportunity. And I usually rebuttal that with, well, that's a choice that you can change. You can change to have a mentor. All you have to do is, you know, in the terms of a civil aviation education, just go hang out at the airport and find some old timers and find out their background. And, and it's tough to break through that barrier that yeah. to have the courage to just walk up to someone who you don't know, or maybe talk around the FBO and see who maybe there's someone that can talk to you about a career in aviation that's currently an airline pilot, you know, and it takes courage to do that. It's a soft skill that yeah. more and more we start to see society lose. You know, everybody's all about yeah, think, texting and, and, you know, yeah. not having that interpersonal communication. And that's something that really is crucial, I think, to building a career with leadership. You know, I think you hit on something if you are, if you, if you do break that ground where you want to talk to somebody and they find out that you're interested, I think people would be surprised how easily and how much people want to help out because they want to share their experience and, and they want to see somebody succeed. Um, you know, at a squadron, I, I was a squadron commander at one point for operations support squadron, but before I had that gig, um, I was talking to my friend who was about to take a squadron 
and uh, he was wondering about how he was going to handle the 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 reins, you know, how he's how he's going to lead. And I told him, um, look, the guys and girls in your unit in your squadron, um, military and civilian, the 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 top, the cream of the crop is going to be obvious. There's going to be people that are dominant at what they do. They're fantastic. They're very smart and, and they're taking care of business. I said, your job is to get rid of them. You want to take them and send them out of the squadron. And the reason is, is because there's a team below them that is either not believing in themselves because the A team say is taking care of business. They don't realize that they can do that same thing. Your job is to mentor them up to fulfill those roles and make them the A team. And then once they've done it and they're really good at it, you don't lean on them like a crutch and try to make yourself look good. You send them out too. And then you bring the next batch in and you bring, you build them up. So that's, that's, I think the responsibility um, when you're in those roles, you know, to, to the folks that you're responsible for is to giving them every tool and every opportunity to fulfill their uh, potential, their, yeah, yeah, their best of their potential. Exactly. Yeah, and and it and to offer them things that they never thought they would be a part of, really, and then that's the buy-in. Once they see that happen, it's it's powerful. So, is it wow. is it really about building confidence more than it is about producing leaders? Uh, there's a little bit of that. I mean, there's probably your uh, quieter uh, professional that maybe doesn't want to be out there. Uh, touting themselves in a leadership role, but you, you, you just got to break through that piece. I mean, I think that's the lesser that you're going to find that, but there's uh, essentially what I think the most important thing is, is to let them understand that your main concern is not yourself. Like my, my goal here is not for me to get promoted. My goal here is to take care of you. And if I dedicate my efforts towards ensuring that you have everything at your disposal that you needed to be take to take care of this mission that I know you will. And that goes deeper than just uh, giving them the jobs that are, have to do with the military stuff. It has to do with making sure that their families at home are good to go. If somebody's having an issue, uh, say there's a medical uh, issue with a, with a family member at home. I want to be aware of that. And I want to make as, not, um, as much space as possible for them to take care of their own family and to give any resources that I have the capability of giving them to take help them take care of that situation, just as an example. And what you'll find is that when people see that and they see that it's true that you actually go the extra mile and you're investing in these people, that uh, there's no there's no limit to what they'll do to try to take care of you and the mission. Even though that's not the goal, but that's that's real uh, it's I would have been satisfied if I did never got promoted again, but I know I took care of some people and I I got them into places that benefited them in, in their careers and their families, that would have been enough for me. So nice. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because here we are, you know, talking about journey in aviation and we're talking about some fundamental things that most pilots, at least when they're coming up the ranks through, you know, regional airlines and then onto majors and then mainline legacy carriers is they learn by experiencing it that when you're the bigger the company that you're working for the less of that they feel 
as employees. And I'm not just talking about pilots here. I'm talking about everyone involved in the operation from the, from the fuelers to the aircraft, to the rampers, to the cabin cleaners, to the pilots and the flight attendants and the gate agents. If the bigger the company, the less you feel like your leadership, your, your higher up is even knowing your name. <laughs> let alone right. knowing that you have something going on that they can create space for you so that you can be taken care of, felt genuinely taken care of by your leadership. And, and therefore, in return, you, you really have a loyalty that is created. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And with that loyalty comes productivity. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's nice to hear uh, that uh, from my previous career and my, before I became a, a pilot, uh, I was in management for a retail establishment. And it's funny because a lot of the similar things that we talked about were, you know, find out who your gold stars are, your champions, and then make sure that you give them the tools to lead at, by example, but then also, like you said, move on into other departments and grow and then exactly. pull up exactly. those from underneath that go, well, I want that person's job as soon as they move. Well, then show me what you got. Become my gold star. And so we, we have a very similar outlook on, on sure, leadership sure. and it comes not yeah, from good. an aviation background, but from, you know, uh, more of a background of, of management. Yeah. And I, and I think when, uh, when people recognize you, you can say all those things and it doesn't mean much to the folks working with you or for you until they see you back it up. So once, once they recognize that you're genuine about that, then it, it does change the game. And then from an airline perspective, I mean, it's one of those deals where it does get more difficult as you get more separated in those uh, leadership roles because you're further away from the folks on the ground that are grinding, you know, the technical experts. And that's kind of what your young aviator is trying to do. He's trying to become a technical expert in, in our case, the weapon system, or in this case, a, a Learjet or whatever aircraft they're in. You definitely want to be a technical expert. Um, but as you roll up into those management roles, uh, some of those programs where they you know, go out there and sling bags with the guys on the tarmac and the girls. And if they're uh, finding out the gate agents role, standing with them for a day, figure out what issues they're dealing with, customers in their face. Un- uh, just gaining an understanding of it goes a long way because then they can speak to it and, and say, look, I've gone out uh, and done these things and I've seen some of the struggles. And then you build some credibility to say, I want your input and I want your feedback because uh, the way we're going to get great as a company isn't going to be from a bunch of middle high level management folks uh, coming up with great schemes in an office. It's going to be insanely good ideas that come from the the ground. We we used to say that with, uh, I'll segue to a a kind of a a larger picture. Just an interesting observation over 25 years and you mentioned the Ministry of Defense. So I got to see a couple of cool things. I got to see uh, the Afghan Air Force and Army and their leadership structure. Of course, we were heavily influencing that. However, some of those senior generals that, that I was advising were Soviet-era war uh, generals. And so a lot of them actually got their education if they went to a war college or something like that was in the Soviet Union. So it was this top-down leadership piece. Uh, but the Afghan soldiers modeled that. So if you would see, for instance, if a, if a young soldier were to question uh, anything uh, out in the field, you might hear stories of, no kidding, a, a 
senior ranking officer or somebody coming over and physically striking that individual, right? That is that you're not going to ask questions or question anything that's going on here. It's top down leadership wow. and, and brutally. So in that case, and then segueing over to, I was in uh, Australia and we had a class. I, I was fortunate enough to go to a school there where we had 25 um, Aussies, two exchange officers, myself and one army uh, colonel. And then the other 25 folks represented 17 different nations. One of them, which was uh, the PRC, uh, Army Colonel from Ch- uh, China. So I immediately had to study up my history because he was rolling in on me on Taiwan and various other issues uh, that he was upset about. But uh, So I quickly studied up on my history. But what dawned on me over the course of the year with his name is Dai Wing Min, uh, the army colonel from the Chinese army, that they're also a high, highly top-down uh, directive force. They promote uh, people that have extraordinary intellect in memorization because they want them to repeat what the party line is and they want them to be good at it. They aren't asking them what their opinion is. They're asking them to spout the communist party line. So the interesting so, for instance, in Afghanistan, if I was asking a brigadier general, we we think that you should do these helicopter operations this way. They would say, I can't make that decision. It has to be the three-star. And we'd ask the three-star. He'd say, it's not my decision. It's the Ministry of Defense decision. Ask him. He'd say, it's not mine. It's the president has to make that decision. Oh, wow. So what they weren't getting is kind of what you were tapping at with that leadership piece. The difference in the United States Air Force and and all military branches that they can never understand in what makes us so much better, in my opinion. Um, We graduated airmen out of tech school or out of Lackland Air Force Base, and he doesn't have a stripe on his shoulder at all. And he's going to follow orders because somebody's going to tell him that he has to do X, Y, Z. He's going to do it. But along the way, he's going to say, yes, sir. But we encourage him the whole time to ask questions to ask, why do we do it this way? Because we care if he's a, if he came from the farm fields in Nebraska, or if he's a descendant of Japanese uh, grandparents and they do things a certain way, and they think that they, they question it because they, there's a different way that could be perhaps better. We want to know about it. And the same thing with a butter bar first, second lieutenant just graduated and he's working for uh, whoever uh, flight commander. Yes, you're going to follow orders, but you are highly encouraged to ask why. How do we do, why do we do it this way? So we're essentially asking for a hugely diverse um, set of opinions and understanding and input to try to make our operations better. It's something that they can never be understood in that top-down Soviet or top-down Chinese leadership style. So I think yeah. that's our asymmetric advantage by far. Yeah, it sounds like it has a lot to do with instead of toting the line is has to do with what's right, what's just, what's moral, what's correct versus. Well, that's a great point, too, because I mean, yeah, do you believe do you believe in the cause that you're fighting for or are you being told to do it and at at risk of not following orders? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's fantastic that you can explain it that way. A lot of, I think, civilian pilots that, you know, used to be a time where in your job interview at a mainline carrier, they all, they wanted to know is who was your CO and, you know, what unit were you, you know, deployed with. And, and now the way things are in this country, 
uh, most pilots now are coming through civilian ranks. They've gone to a flight school. Uh, they've, you know, flight instructed. It used to be they were, you know, hauling canceled checks around in newspapers and things. And now it, that those jobs really are few and far between. Uh, and you're very fortunate if you can find a, a private job flying a jet around um, because those jobs are also few and far between and because and they're sought after. They're fantastic opportunities. So most people, I think, go through the, the flight schools. They go flight instruct for a couple of years. They build their time. They get on with a, a regional carrier or maybe a 135 carrier first. And their end goal is to get to mainline. So you have all these pilots that are flooding the the system here in the United States that only a small portion of them, of the newer pilots, have this military experience, have this kind of knowledge and background. And sometimes that creates a conflict because then you'll have more experienced pilots on the flight deck that came from that military background. And they look going over and going, this guy or gal is spoiled, rotten, egotistical, arrogant SOB. <laughs> and I got to deal with this person for four days. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always seen kind of this difference uh, of attitude. How do we combat that attitude? How do we convey to a pilot who came through a less experienced, a less organized, uh, leadership-focused background that they would get from a background in military or aviation? Um, and they're coming up from a flight school and they think they're God's gift to aviation. And they look at you like you're a knucklehead because <laughs> you're calm, quiet, and you're picking your battles and they're over there sure. spouting off at the mouth. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, the airlines have some responsibility to, uh, to be choosy about who they're picking to get in, in these, in these positions. But, um, I mean, who do you want to fly with? You know, I agree with that. Uh, like the military, you you do need to become a technical expert as you go, but kind of building that mentality that um, you are also the future of this airline and you have an instructor uh, responsibility in a positive way, right? So it's just, who do you want to learn from? Do you want to learn from somebody that is a dashboard pounder, you know, and saying you're doing it wrong and doesn't explain why, or uh, somebody that's encouraging and say, hey, great job. There's a couple of different ways you could look at that in the teaching and instructing as you go and trying to build the next captain in, in, in a positive way and encouraging them along the way to, to ask questions. And really, if there is no captain out there or FO or former military that has all the answers in aviation, there's still, there's too much knowledge out there for everybody to know it all. And you kind of have to keep working at it. So it's a great way for a, ca a captain in the left seat to be, take on that mentorship role be encouraging, be positive, be a positive role model for whatever airline they're working for and um, uh, honing their own skills, right? So if you're asking some random questions that are something that they haven't looked at, let's look at it together and let's learn this thing. Let's, let's make you a good captain. Um, so it's a, it's a positive attitude, I guess. And, uh, uh, and understanding that you're, you're, the, the cause is a little bigger than yourself. It's not just you sitting there to earn a paycheck, although some may or may not think about it that way um but you are representing a larger company and uh you i'd look at it as a service as well like i i, I consider the military service but in a different way the airlines are too you know uh we're bringing those people to important events in their lives and so i think that is a service that uh it, it, not every country can do that um you can buy a ticket and go to 
somebody's retirement. You can go to somebody's, um, you know, whether it's a funeral, a wedding, uh, something that's an important event in somebody's life. And so it's a service in that way. So I think it, with that mentality and uh, the idea that you're there to mentor and teach and make people the best they can be, the safest pilot they can be, uh, it's good for everyone. Yeah, I always get a kick out of, and, and I learned this early, lesson early on, probably 15 plus years ago, when I was a new hire at a regional and sit next to a captain. And the first time I heard this, I honestly didn't know what to think. And the pilot next to me goes, they should just cancel this flight so I could just go home. <laughs> uh, what, um, what? What? Is there something wrong yeah. with the airplane? Is there, wh- wh- why are you saying this? Oh, if they cancel the flight, I can just go home. I can well, you know, I go home and get paid. I'm paid guaranteed. And, and you look at them. And the first time I heard this, I, I honestly was in shock. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know if he was joking or not. But this is a common thread. Anybody at a 121 carrier that has had any experience <laughs> has flown with this person, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and you sit yeah, there and yeah. you look. And my favorite is, you know, when I was a captain, I was sitting there and I couldn't tell you how many times I heard that exact thing come from my FO. And I would sit there and go, well... If you don't want to be here, that's fine. I don't want you to fly if you're not in the game. If Mentally like ready to, call, to go, yeah. If you want to call out sick, go home, call in fatigue, whatever you want, I'll back you up. I'll support you for your decision because only you know if you're fit for duty. But if it's my understanding that we make money if the company makes money. And the company makes money by transporting people, like you said, to important events from point A to point B. That's our job. We're scheduled, so we have you know, do our best to leave on time and get them there when they think they're going to get there. Yeah. If you don't want to be here, stay home. That's fine. Exactly. But don't come yeah. into work but- and sit there and, and say, oh, they should cancel <laughs> this flight or start looking for reasons to cancel the flight. Oh, I found something wrong with the airplane. Really? What is it? Oh, uh, there's a, there's a placard missing. Okay. Well, why don't we just call maintenance and MEL it? Oh, oh, it's a no-go item. How do you know that? Well, I know all the no-go items. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> So I appreciate you saying that. Um, It's definitely an attitude. Well, I'll tell you, I I think that's why they pull military people because they don't know for a while. uh, (laughs) They're they're (laughs) gluttons for punishment. And, 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 you know, let's go. Let's get this thing done. Yeah. What are are, you, know, it's just kind of that mentality. But um, yeah, I've certainly heard those other things. But I I definitely say that uh, in these two years, which have been turbulent, right? No pun intended with the, the COVID and all these other things, I still feel like I'm getting away with something every day. So in the time that I have on my hands, uh, compared to what I was doing in the military is extraordinary. You know, you know, when your downtime is your downtime. And, yeah. uh, that has got can, to be one of the most eye-opening experiences for you. Cause I remember paying a visit to you up in Seattle and, yeah. uh, and you, you had your, you know, your phone, your, 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 what is it? A Blackberry. And then you had your little war room in your in your house there, and you're always connected on your day off. And I'm like, man, when you get out of this place and you get it to an airline, I mean, you literally show up 45 minutes before departure and you go to work, you land, <laughs> you put your kit back away, and then you never look at it again until the next flight. Unless you're Roger. Yeah. Uh, and this and, is and where <laughs> this is where Roger all of a sudden is where Roger in the background. In. Actually, Roger's been working and been on the phone for ten minutes yeah, before. Now working. he hears this and his little Earl's ears perk up and he goes, "You guys yeah. are prima donnas." Yeah, <laughs> we show up to the airplane forty-five minutes prior and 
Well, we go so, kick the tires and say, hey, it's good to go. And then we go home. So there you go, military guys. If you want to continue that kind of work, you just see Roger and ask him. <laughs> <once>. <laughs> yeah. Come on down. Uh, oh, my God. You can, do, you can be dispatcher, scheduler. Yeah. Uh, Flight attendant. Maintenance tech. Baggage handler. Flight yeah. attendant. Oh, yeah. Bag handler. How's your back, by the way? <laughs> that was my, uh, my video yeah. when I wrenched my back last week. Yeah, yeah. that was lovely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's actually a pretty good point you bring up there. For, so for Mark, you know, I mean, your your job um, as a pilot was really a small part of what you did in the military because, you know, you yeah. had all these other roles. You know, the, the flying part was, uh, I remember you mentioned it to me before, was a nice getaway from the, uh, yeah, from the, yeah, you know, that was from great. all the stuff, stress, you know? Yeah, we had a, there's a kick window outside the right side of the C-17. Every time we rotated and, and started leaving the tarmac, I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. No phones, yeah, no, no emails, let's go. Yeah. yeah. That's I'm what sure. it's like again on the, in the GA gonna, side. It's like you finally yeah. get to go fly and oh man, this is the easy part. Yeah. Finally, I get a break. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. The, it was a break, exactly. And we'll have more right after the break. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and speaking of your uh aircraft experience, uh started out on the what the T37B? Is that what was your initial trainer? It did. Yeah, I did the uh, pilot training advance in here here in Oklahoma. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a six months in the tweet, which they've since retired. I've retired a couple of planes. It was the, the T-37 retired and then later the C-141, which I retired as well. Uh, not personally, but they, they retired in my time anyway. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, T-37 and then a T-1 Jayhawk, uh, Mitsubishi 3000 essentially was the, were the two aircraft we trained on there. Yeah. Nice. And so in your training and now most, most of our listeners, I think, uh, have gone through some pilot training or in pilot training right now. I'm very happy to say that I've been getting more and more feedback from our listeners. I'm very excited about that. So keep them coming uh, about their success and their journeys in training. Uh, And your training was a little bit more controlled in the military environment. Did you ever have an event that you experienced that changed kind of your trajectory along the way on your journey? (laughs) Uh, I had one experience that, uh, you know, I would say kind of a sobering experience that, um, in the T-37. So now that I'm retired, I can tell about it. So, (laughs) so, you know, it's one of those deals where you're, you're, you're allowed to solo and you can fly out to your area and we were authorized to do our aerobatics and all that kind of thing. And, uh, I was doing an Immelman, and which was called the Immel Spin for very for obvious reasons. Now, I was getting as much speed as I could in in a low area, which was key because the the envelope for the T thirty seven, but they want you to eject from the aircraft is ten thousand feet. So if you're having a problem, you, you need to eject. This didn't have a greatest ejection system. So, but I was already in a low area, which was below below ten thousand. So I dove down and got as much smash as you can get in a, in a T-37 and then put a G onset and started bringing it up to do an implement. Well, I realized I, I, I didn't have a good G strain. I wasn't doing properly to get that blood flow into my head. So uh, I started graying out in the, in the plane and 
I had to unload it so that it, it wouldn't knock me out. And I wasn't quite done with the maneuver. So I've got, now I'm upside down. They got the nose hanging up there. And I saw the speed get down to really low, under 80 knots maybe. And it was oh. it was going to stall. And so we had trained on stalling, but we purposefully entered the stall at idle, you know, right side up, and you let it start wrapping off into a spin, and then you recover. Well, now I'm upside down, mill power, full power, not a not an idle introduction. And I'm like, man, I might spin this thing inverted, right? So it was a pretty, <laughs> pretty eye-opening experience. So uh, sure enough, it did wrap off. And it righted itself, so it's it went into a spin, uh, but right side up, thankfully. And I still remember idle, neutral, aft, one full spin. So I'm in Oklahoma, and thankfully it's all gridded out, so I could see where the nose started, and I let it go, and I, it felt like forever because we're losing altitude pretty heavy. Uh, came the nose came back around, threw the stick forward as hard as I could, and I tried to break some of the uh, instruments. And it started fluttering out and flying itself out. So I did a couple patrol passes around the uh, the MOA, uh, the operating area, and just kind of got my act together and brought it back in. But man, that was uh, I was the best. The next time I went out with a, an instructor and we did spins, he was like, "Man, that's the best spin recovery I've seen." Practicing, so kind of kind of put the. A real deal on that. And, and technically, I probably should have punched if it was below 7,000 feet. So I was going to give it one try. If it didn't, if it went into another spin, I would have had to punch out of that aircraft. So, wow. yeah, it was an eye opener and, and something that uh, ingrains the seriousness of the business. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And, you know, we've yeah. all kind of had those experiences that we, we're like, oh, thank you. I'm back on the ground. <laughs> My feet yeah. are on the ground. <laughs> but that, thank you for sharing that with us. You know, your, yeah. your success uh, throughout the years has really molded who you are as a pilot today. We all have these experiences. And I think the more experiences you have along your journey, the more well-rounded you are as an aviator. And when you're on that flight deck, it contributes to a higher level of safety, keep you on the rails or inside the, what we call PTS, the practical test standards, right? Um, was getting into a 737 for domestic air any bit of a challenge or was it just like another day at the office for you? Uh, it was a huge challenge. Uh, so it was, it was interesting. Um, flying the aircraft wasn't, hard to me uh because i'd flown the c-17 and, and a 141 which is pretty similar feel to a, to a 737 but the operation was hugely different and probably the biggest mind blow is the speed because you know we would we would plan for a mission for a day and a half or, or a day, full day anyway prior and you'd be on the tarmac for four hours before that plane moved uh you know so you have plenty of time now i'm in this carry that wants to turn you know at the gate in 20 minutes and get everything done and it was that's that pace threw me off and then um the ground operations were totally different i didn't it didn't dawn on me until you know on my uh, on my ioe i flew out and in that week i went to atlanta la and chicago and I was like, are you kidding me? Did they do this on purpose just to haze me? You know, with these, uh, <laughs> the, the air, the air spaces weren't bad, you know, flying around, uh, 
in the air was good. You know, that would, that would remind me of flying around Frankfurt with a C-17, a very controlled environment and uh, a lot going on, but it's, it's very structured, but the ground operations, um, and it, it didn't dawn like, you know, you're, you're slowing down on the runway and you're decelerating through 60 knots and they're spouting out, you know, 50, 60 directions to you. And you're, you know, not that bad, but it felt like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, over the radio. And if you're in your, you weren't even, I wasn't even prepared to hear the call. Uh, and it, when I got to, I landed at Albuquerque later and I was like, oh, that's the deal. Cause that's a dual use deal. Yeah. And, you know, I get off the runway and, I called them to initiate the call for the the taxi and it's like one taxiway and in a park. So that, that's yeah. what I was used to. And as opposed to very complex ground operations elsewhere. And you know, I, I could, how many times I looked left thinking we're going to take a left and the captain turns right. I'm like, Oh, it's that way. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> of course, you know, I was so yeah, the ground operations were a big mind blow and then the pace, but, um, you will get there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter once as the repetition goes, you start getting yeah. to these same places over and over again, you get a lot better and you anticipate yeah. you know, the, that, that call, or you tell the air, uh, tower, Hey, uh, unable standby, you know? Yeah. And, and when I get off and I get my act together, then, then what was the, what was the, what were the instructions? Right. <laughs> yeah. My favorite, and it's been a long time since I've told this and I, so I think I'll tell it again, <laughs> Rob and Roger. Have heard <laughs> it. Uh, you know, Chicago. I fessed up. Chicago <laughs> is uh, one of those airspaces where I honestly believe that there's some of the best air traffic controllers in the world. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, charts and approaches and departures. I mean, Chicago has one departure, and it's radar vectors. I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that. The controllers will tell you what to do, but. Beyond that, simplicity comes directions that are spotted out by the controllers 60, 70 times an hour, <laughs> if not more, yeah. uh, to every single aircraft. So they're used to it. And my favorite- and They've been thing, there 20, 20 plus years. Yeah, it, yeah. It, they, yeah. They, exactly. And some of the people that are based there, like myself, I was based there for off and on for 12 years. Uh, if they spit out eight things in a clearance, I'm already spitting it back. And then if you ask me what I just said, I don't know, but I know what to do because, <laughs> you know, so yeah. my favorite thing I ever heard, I was coming into to Chicago and there was an MD-80 in front of us for Legacy Airlines. And, uh, you know, I was in front of them and they told us, you know, does it maintain 8,000 turn left heading 270, intercept the localizer, maintain 200 knots to this fix, maintain 180 knots to that fix, and you're cleared for the uh, visual, you know, da 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 and so I just went, la, 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 and I repeated it back. No problem. Why? Because I heard it two or three times a day, every day at work for the last, you know, decade. Yeah. And then the following, <laughs> <laughs> the following clearance was, uh, yeah, legacy one, two, three, uh, descend, maintain 8,000, turn left, any 270, intercept the localizer, maintain 200 knots to this fix, maintain 180 knots to that fix, clear to And then you hear silence on the radio. And you hear, now, now. Now, hold on a minute. I'm from the South. You either need to say that again three more times or say it again once real slow like. <laughs> <laughs> and we were dying laughing and the controller only gave two or three instructions at a time as is hey. what is supposed to happen, right? To yeah. maintain this. Situationally aware. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the lesson that I learned amongst all that laughter <laughs> for days <laughs> was <laughs> that it's easy to get in this kind of groove and do 20 minute turns after 
you get used to it. You know, we, sure. we're always impressed with domestic air's uh, ability to turn an airplane like it was a, a Saab or a, a Brasilia, you know, it's a freaking turboprop yeah, coming in, but the engine's still running, everybody on, everybody off, you got 10 people. Now you're dealing with 150 people plus, and, yeah. <laughs> and you got a 20 minute turn, and you're like, wait, what? And then, of course, you guys taxi at v1 i don't know how that happens but. <laughs> so, so so you get all these quick turns and you're knocking out four legs a day sometimes and and uh it's just very impressive and to go from somewhere like an environment where you have days like you said to plan a mission and roger as well mm-hmm. he has sometimes days of work to kind of get everything going and get everything you know signed off and then once you get in the airplane it's like ah oh, Okay, let's go. But that can be pretty intimidating if you have if you're not experiencing that on a regular basis. So for whether you're coming in from a a branch of the service to a a mainline carrier or you're new at a regional and you're not used to you're used to checking magnetos, you know, and doing a (laughs) prop check before you take off, not go go go. Yeah, yeah, totally. It can be overwhelming. And it's just like you know, you could be a a marathon runner. a great athlete, but then somebody says, okay, Hey, we're going to do a P90X for four months. That first three days, you're going to be sore and you're going to be hurting, even though you're perfectly good shape and you knew what you were getting into. Yeah. Uh, it's just a different thing. So just a different bag. Yeah. So I, totally. I got, I got a couple, a couple questions. Well, one question and one kind of question. Um, do, do, um, legacy pilots, you do realize that anything over, like three knot taxing, you know, you can go between three knots and V1. There is a lot of space in between that. Hey, uh, yeah. Because uh, you negative. guys, legacy, it's like a crawl. Our yes. operating handbook mirrors the aeronautical information manual that says okay, well, all taxi speeds, faster than a crawl it's doesn't a mean it's walk. V1. I just want to, I just want to point <laughs> that out to walk. you guys. Okay. Cause <laughs> wow. Is, and then my, my other a, question. Meter. <laughs> Other question. Somewhat, I guess. More. Do you guys flying at the major airports? Obviously, all of you guys. When you exit the runway, how often do you stop before contacting ground? Depends on the airport. Very rare. Yeah. In Dallas, what airport? If it's congested, you clear the you clear the runway. You stop, and you wait your turn to talk to get clearances in chicago o'hare you don't stop unless armageddon is is happening yeah chicago Chicago, you do whatever you want but just don't stop if you miss your turn that nobody cares but keep going just take a lap yeah chicago's (laughs) don't stop and don't cross a run i only ask that because because coming from the airline obviously it's been a few years now i've actually been berated a couple times at smaller airports because i'm used to just i think from the airlines get off and get out of the way and keep moving yeah and at the smaller airport the smaller airports they don't really like that i've been berated <laughs> yeah. a couple of times it's like what are you doing you have not received taxi clearance stop oh, right so that's yeah. something that was a little bit different i just thought about that with o'hare because yeah you know i was yeah. based in o'hare for for a while too and it's like whatever you do do not stop yeah just yeah. keep going yeah i i had a uh, o'hare atc guy jump seating in our cockpit one day and i said hey you know i asked him a question i said what are three you know, rules to go by from an ATC controller. If I, you know, you're talking airline pilot and he's like, number one, you get clear of the runway. Don't stop. Number two, don't cross a runway. And number three, 
never follow Aero Mexico. And then you follow <laughs> <laughs> these three rules, you'll be fine. Yeah. You're good. You won't get in trouble. So, <laughs> yeah. So now yeah. writing that down. How, how do you go, Mark, from flying a C-17 to a 737? I mean, the payloads on the C-7... I used to live in Tacoma, Washington for a few years. I used to oh, commute yeah. to Chicago. And I lived right sure. under the outer marker uh, for the airbase there. And I used to look up and, and watch the C-17s drop their landing gear. Gear yeah. down. Gears down and checked. Yep. Uh, under or over my house. And it was fantastic. Um, but how do you go from that? heavy equipment to something that's a, a narrow body uh, you know it, it's funny because the c-17's payload is just about maybe five thousand pounds less than than the aircraft itself so it, it, you know if i have a hundred and seventy five thousand pound uh, 737 that's the back of the c-17 we can load one hundred and seventy thousand pounds so it's, it's roughly the weight of that <laughs> aircraft that we could put in the back and then you could go at 300 knots and 300 feet and roll 85 yeah. degrees of bank so like a crop duster wow yeah yeah but yeah. um you know they they seem to i don't know i maybe it was because i was in the 141 previously but it it just seemed like a nice transition you know it was it, honestly the 737s fly faster um approaches than the c-17 did because that thing was so it had slats and flaps and the wings were so yeah. huge that especially when we were doing assault landings in that you're doing a five degree glide path with um maybe 128 knots so wow. really slow slow speeds so this thing uh the 737 is a little more challenging because you can uh just be off glide path real easily i don't know maybe it's the speeds but um but landing it was I think it was because of my 141 experience felt very natural, you know, so it, not too much of a transition, big plane to big, big airplane to small airplane, but it's still significant. Yeah. And what was your, like, if I were to ask you what your favorite experience flying the C-17 was, what event comes to mind? Well, we had some uh, remarkable events, but then some uh, just kind of, uh, cool ones i mean they, we we when they bought that plane it was you know i guess initially like 230 million dollars a copy so i thought that they were going to treat it very nice you know not not use it to its magic extent but um that wasn't the case i mean they were i personally wasn't doing the airdrops but our guys were doing airdrops and you know to forward operating bases lower than the mountain level like no kidding taliban shooting down from the mountains onto the planes and it hmm. was, they were, they had to get their, uh, payloads within a hundred feet, hopefully, hopefully on target. Exactly. But no more than hundred feet because the guys at the forward operating bases would have to go out and retrieve whatever they were delivering them and they would be under fire. So it was like very tight tolerances and, uh, pretty wow. incredible flying. But then we also did, uh, in say Bagram, for instance, um, when we first got in there, they had torn up the runway on the left-hand side. Well, we bombed it to start with, so it was torn up. So we had to fix it. But uh, you, they tore up the left side of the runway, so you have these huge cement uh, slabs all torn up. And then the back of the runway was all torn up, huge cement slabs. So you're now at a high-pressure altitude situation, uh, five-degree glide path assault landing to a 500-foot strike zone on night vision goggles. And you have to hit the mark because it's unforgiving if you're going to go over that one because you're going to destroy the plane. 
Gosh, so that dang. was no kidding to about to like a 3,500 foot runway. So that, that was just a cool experience. I was just grateful that I was able to fly the thing and um, we kind of used it to its max, max extent. So it was tell the story, Mark, the, the uh, one story you told me about mobilizing all the aircraft at one time. I, I don't remember what the name of uh, that uh, mission was. Yeah, but, we, uh, we did it was a pretty uh, interesting. Yeah, we did a joint force exercise. And so, um, the group commander from the other base called me and said, Hey, can you, can you get together as many C-17s as possible? We want to fly in this joint force exercises, which is a coalition type deal, um, where you simulate assaulting, uh, an air base with the army and everybody else. And, uh, I was like, look, man, I don't have the, the airplanes or the people to do something of that magnitude. So what are you just trying to break a record? What are you trying to do? He said, uh, no, I'm trying to prove the Pope book, which essentially was like a full the gap situation. Uh, we're full out war against, uh, you know, say Russia. And we're, uh, what can we do? How many people can we mobilize? You pull everybody out of their schools, you throw everybody in a plane, we do it all. So I said, all right, man, if you're doing it for a, a legitimate reason, I'll try to do what we can do. So we got, uh, amazingly, 17 C-17s uh, uh, together. They got 12, and then there was another 11 from uh, a weapon school that was at Dallas. And so we're going to meet, uh, I mean, to get 17 C-17, that's like, you know, several billion dollars worth of assets just off of our tarmac, every 30 seconds taken off. So you had to have all your maintainers involved. You had to have all the uh, aerial port folks involved, the support squadrons, the entire base is engaged. There's thousands of people to get these 17 airborne. So we do it, uh, and we start going into the night sky with the lights blazing. And no kidding, there's like reports from uh, UFO reports all over from the area, like, you know, Washington over Nevada, they're, they're the, the reports are coming. They don't know what it is. It's a string of lights. And then we merge. They leave from the East Coast of Charleston and then from uh, Nellis and we all merge into a 39 ship. I don't think that I, I guarantee there's never been a formation larger than that that was that was a record uh, wow incidentally but uh 39 c-17s in the air and so then we descended into the night sky through the night vision goggles on in a huge train um into what i would describe as like a hornet's nest because all other coalition players are in there so you got f-15s f-16s b-52s a-10s the entire inventory AWACS uh, is up there supporting this thing and i looked up with my night vision goggles and see what I would call like a hornet's nest whipping, but it was fighters, uh, taking turns tight and just lighting up these laser sights, uh, to clear the way for us to come through in a simulated battle. And then we would drop off the army folks and, and go out. And then C-17 is dropping flares, you know, seven or eight planes in front of me because they were getting basically attacked. It was unbelievable. It was basically represented the, um, full capability of the United States Air Force with all their assets by themselves, uh, night one to kick down the door anywhere in the world. So it was, it was amazing. Cool. Yeah, so, was yeah cool. that was, that was an experience that, you know, you can't, I, I didn't even know it existed until I was there. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I can, cool. I can just picture it as you're describing it. Um, yeah. That's oh, like yeah. A, it's like a Hollywood film <laughs> for just yeah. epic proportions. Actually, I was it, I was the mission commander on that. I was definitely not the expert on the scene. There was a lot of hugely talented people in there that were making that happen. But uh, my biggest concern was I didn't want to hear him say uh, spin because that meant that 
all the aircraft had to turn around. Like we couldn't go in yet. And 39 aircraft, you got to get the call and you have to do the, the procedure immediately. And it basically turns the aircraft in the opposite direction. So somebody says spin, then it's like idle 45 degrees of bank opposite direction. And so now I'm like, if somebody doesn't get the word, we've got planes going big to be train beat. wreck. I was just, yeah. yeah, I was very concerned about that. And we did, but we did spin and everybody did it right. And we came back through and, and got, got through. It was <laughs> amazing. They, those guys were awesome. Wow. 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 Yeah, yeah. That's just, Dang, dude. that's so lost on those of us that have never experienced anything like that or been a part of anything like that. And I can only imagine, and I just have the utmost respect, just even hearing what goes into something like that all it takes is one or two of those dominoes to fall and it's oh, going to be a disaster yeah. you know that's one of the great things about living in this country though is that we are i i would argue ignorant to the full capability of what our military is are, is capable of i mean the things that they research the things that they do the logistics that goes into that to in order in order to pull off operations like that i mean we can be ignorant you know as a civilian um, but then to hear stuff like that about what our military is capable of, should the, should the call come, yeah. um, is, is pretty amazing that we live in a country that has, that has that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It blew my mind. I'll tell you that. It was, it was the first time. And I you were there. And yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it was a mind blow even being there for sure. Yeah. Now, yeah, because we don't always uh, team up with all those coalition partners, you know, and having all those air assets in the air. There was several hundred planes in the air at the same time. It was amazing. Yeah. Wow. I want to. I want to see a movie about this. Write the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mark, I recently read that leadership is a quality that is easy to recognize, but very difficult to define. How do you define leadership? Okay, it's a good question, and you know, it, it's a. <laughs> life is a leadership study, right? So you, you work for people that you liked working for, you like, you work for people you didn't like working for. And so you kind of try to take notes on what were the good things and what were the bad things. If I had that opportunity, here's something I probably wouldn't do, or here's something I definitely want to do. But, you know, my dad imparted this on me uh, when I was going to take command the first time in the Operation Sports Squadron. And he gave me a book, it was on leadership, but essentially he wrote in there, hey, just be yourself. and that really kind of encompasses what it's about because you, you can read all the books you want and you can espouse to be something that uh, sounds like a good leadership characteristic. But if it's not you, it's not you. You can't uh, pretend to be that role or try to act in a way that looks like it's supposed to be. That's never going to work in my opinion. I think it's one of those deals where if you're true to yourself, if you just be yourself, uh, offer that to the people that you're working with or who happen to be working for you or that you're working for and you're genuine, uh, that's going to win the day. And again, you go, it goes back to what I was saying before that uh, in my way of, of doing it was, like, yeah, I have these three goals and these are things that I wanted to. You know, Patton was the one that said, don't tell people how to do it. Do something. Uh, tell them what needs to be done and let them amaze you with the ways they come up with to do it. And uh, you want to be selfless because it's not about you. And I think that uh, there was a quote that I'll use here. I'm going to retire a buddy of mine uh, tomorrow or the next day in Louisville. Um, 
Reagan quote was on his desk and it said, you'd be amazed at what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. And and so if you have that mentality, uh, like, look, we're here together and I'm here to take care of you. And you trust that because you're doing that, they're going to take care of the mission, which they do. Um, You're going to be in a good place and and you're going to be very successful. I think, I think that's the key to it. Yeah. Very well said. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually (laughs) one of the most inspiring things I've heard this week. I I can go to sleep a happy guy tonight. That was awesome. Yeah. Well, here's, here's a reality part of that too. Um, I was keenly aware that I was never the smartest guy in the room. You know, there are some people that, that that have those abilities that they're, they're the one percenter and they, they're very smart. Uh, I, I never felt like I was the smartest guy in the room. And so partially it was, I needed the experts. uh, And if I spent the time to uh, figure out who they were, who the people are that are working for you, and what makes them tick? What are they interested in? This worked out really nice in the OSS and this operation support squadron because it's an eclectic squadron. It's a support squadron. You got intel people, you got uh, current operations, you got readiness, you had people working in the aircrew flight equipment, just all these different areas. So we get an assortment of officers and enlisted that would come in to work and support the squad. So I would just ask them what their deal is. You know, what's their background? Where they, what are they interested in? And usually I'd hear something that probably applies somewhere in one of those areas and I would defer to them. And then uh, they would thrive in those areas because that's somewhat something they were interested in anyway. And it, it, it helped the whole squadron out. And then you can kind of generally uh, get an idea of how much somebody knows what they're talking about just by asking how and why a few times. So get it a couple of layers in, uh, how are we going to do this? Why are we doing it that way? And they answer that You say, okay, why are we doing that? And once you get about four or five in, you understand if that person is no kidding, an expert in what they're doing and they've got it together or there's some work that needs to be done. And then you can put them on assignment, say, hey, look, uh, there's a couple of things I'd like you to take a look at and, uh, you know, get all the help you need. Anything I can do to help you. But this is what I need. Yeah. You know, it's it's refreshing to speak with someone like yourself that has it together, uh, knows the bigger picture. You know, we, we always joke that what do you get the day you retire, the chief pilot pulls you in the office and he gives you the big picture that, you know, you've been yeah. missing your whole career. Um, yeah. And it's kind of nice and refreshing. Um, and what we were kind of joking about earlier is, you know, how is it that someone with all your experience, with all that you've accomplished so far, and now you're in a civilian job, and I know from you know, my wife's a, a veteran as well, um, and we've had this conversation now many times, um, the difference between going from a military service mentality to a civilian job mentality and, and the stark difference and the adjustment that is often difficult for our veterans. Mm-hmm. How is it that you sit there in the right seat of a 7-3, two years with the company, this projection of a civilian career ahead of you that you can see, and you might sit next to someone who knows really nothing about you and will sit there and say something or have an attitude that is not commensurate with what we've been talking about here for the last hour, which is being a leader. Yeah. And they've got yeah. four stripes and they're telling you what to do and they're, and they're talking as if like you, 
don't know what you're talking about. How do you deal with that? I don't find it too often. You don't run into people that are, you know, hardcore and haven't at least made an effort to figure out a little bit about who you are. I don't offer up much. You know, I just said I was in the military. I flew C-17s. And if they, if they ask persistently, I will share more, but I don't just offer anything up. But, um, you know, I, I, humor is always a a good thing. And I, I I will kind of go from my perspective, which is, I feel like I'm getting away with something with this job. You know, it's like, you're lucky to, I feel like you're, you've been in an incredible position. What, what a great deal. How did you get there? You know, what was your road? Because I know it's difficult. You know, kind of like I was talking about before, uh, there's a, there's a story for everybody to be sitting in those seats, but I, I tend to kind of think it's funny if people are really griping about it because it's such mm. a great gig. Yeah. And, uh, and I may laugh at it and say, you know, that's hilarious because I, I, <laughs> I feel like, I, I feel like I'm getting away with something every time I come in here. You know? And I said, yeah. and I've been here at a, at a tough time. Yeah. You know, I lo- I've loved it. You know, it, how long have you been at the company? And, you know, somebody might be like, well, we had a tough time after 9-11, which no kidding was, you know, they probably threatened a lot of jobs and, or if not lost them. Yeah. And there's been some rough roads in the past. So I'll ask him more questions about that. I guess, uh, just like I did in the squadrons when I wanted to figure out what made people tick and what they were interested in. And it, it helps build that rapport a little better, but I never had any problem, um, interjecting. I'll certainly let my opinion be known. Um, obviously for safety of flight or something like that, but, or, or something that I'd, I want to know the answer to, and Hey, look, you've hit three buttons and I didn't know what you were up to. So what are you doing there? Exactly. So I'll be pretty forward about that kind of stuff because I want to be included in, in the picture and, and not get in a situation where I feel like I really need to intervene. But, um, you know, I had, I had a funny story when I was in the, the C-17 brand new. So I just switched from the C, the 141 to the C-17. I was late rated. So I was a young captain at the time. But I've been around the block a little bit, you know, as an officer. And uh, I was flying the uh, 141 for two years and then switched to the C-17. So now I'm on my second mission in a C-17. And I, in the the evaluator, I was flying with an evaluator uh, just coincidentally, but he was a reserve guy. And uh, I got, I could tell that he was annoyed that he had to deal with a new guy, which already is jacked up because he's he's the evaluator and that's his job, right? To teach the brand new, exactly. it's a perfect pairing as far as the schedule is concerned. But he's reserved and he was kind of like, uh, mm, I was just going to do this run. I didn't want to go into a whole teaching scenario. Well, so now we're in uh, uh, Qatar uh, and we're going to fly into Kandahar, Afghanistan. And so our who, who's getting on the aircraft, but uh, General Tommy Franks. So D- General Franks is on board and it was a um, entourage with him, you know, his aides and all these other folks. And he's got to, he's going into theater. And it's a combat zone. So it was my leg uh, in the C-17, but I was brand, a pretty brand new guy. And this evaluator goes, hey, do you mind if I take this leg with uh, you know, General Franks on board just to, to get our act together and make sure we're, we're doing it? I said, yeah, sure thing. Uh, you know, We were both captains too. So I was like, yeah, sure thing. You know, If you want to take it, it makes you feel more comfortable. I'm, I'm, I don't care. I'll, I'll support it any way I can. So we do take, he takes the leg and we take off into Kandahar. And he briefs up his approach and he's doing a tactical approach into runway five. And uh, he's making his final turn. And now this is kind of a, a, a sticky situation because we're on headset. 
and two of General Frank's uh, entourage were riding in their Rackham and Lackham seats. So they're on board too. And they're in the headsets. They're not pilots, but they're going to, uh, I didn't want to alert them to anything that was wrong, but he was making a base final turn to two, three, essentially setting up for what it looked for me on the altitudes. And he had briefed five. And so I just started asking him questions. I was like, um, so what's your plan here? And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm turning base to final. I said, yeah, base to final one turn. And uh, he's like, yeah. And uh, I was like, hmm, I, I, I thought you briefed a runway five. And he immediately goes around and brings it around the whole airport. He was trying to be tactical and quiet. Now he's loud and he's got the airplane fired up and we land on five. But I was trying to be discreet about it just because of who was in the back and, and not alerting them that we're landing the wrong way. But um, <laughs> when, when we did when we did land, there I was, uh, second run on the C-17s, who he didn't want to fly with, and I just saved his butt from uh, going the wrong way. And he uh, he said that. He goes, you realize you stopped me from landing on the wrong side of the runway? And I said, yeah, I'm aware. So that was it. You know, and then so we both, he, he actually did he did something else crazy on that flight too, and I, I had a chat with him, but it was one of those deals. You know, you just uh, got to step in when you got to step in, and yeah. I didn't pretend to know all the answers, but I knew that was going on. Yeah, you know, and it sounds like there's a common theme here: uh, words like humility, respect, integrity, personal courage, ment- mental, physical, and emotional fortitude. I mean, these are all characteristics that we. They're great words. They're too fancy to be applied to me, so I just well, they're you know, call it the, you yeah, know you're, you're more like common. Yeah, yeah, you've just proven my point with humility. Yeah. They're great words, yeah. but your yeah. actions, your discretion, yeah. has is what sets you apart, and it's and it's obvious. Just talking to you here for this you know short period of time that we're getting to know each other. Uh, and I and I just have the utmost respect for you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, you know, and why why did we want to do this show today? Why did we, uh, you know, sit down and talk about leadership? And it's because a couple times, you know, you you're flying the line, and you'll come across an event with someone else, and you kind of butt heads, and you think to yourself, especially if you're an FO like myself, Roger, and, and Roger's a captain, single, you know, yeah, but he's the, he's the big time. He's the big guy, but Rob and I are time. like, yeah. we're like, uh, we're FOs. And, uh, how come I'm pulling yeah, all the you, weight around here? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I just had a, a similar experience. And according to the air safety foundation, poor leadership is actually the cause of most accidents or incidences. Uh, they have, uh, an analysis that can be found online. I'll put a link in the show notes about this. And they go on to say that poor leadership is a contributor to accidents and incidents in aviation. While it is difficult to quantify specifically which events were caused by poor leadership, it is not unreasonable to consider that leadership as one of the casual factors in 70% of the accidents and incidents that are attributed to human factors. In addition to safety consequences, poor leadership is likely responsible for many other weaknesses and inefficiencies in aviation operations that lead to poor performance and wasted money. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because in that case of the C-17 where we almost landed the wrong way, mm-hmm. I attributed uh, some of those issues because there was another one where we went to the same guy where we went through a sucker hole 
uh, into Bagram. You know, I had the the rings mapped out to five, and I knew we or three, and I knew if we stayed within those, we'd be safe. But it was hugely mountainous terrains, BFR only. And uh, he dropped in there, and, and we were blinded out for a minute. And uh, it, it was really dangerous. But I attributed some of these issues with insecurity. So I didn't think he was fully secure in his role, as even though he was an evaluator. And uh, you kind of pointed that out there. And so it's the difference in a brief with the captain who says, look, uh, I try to do everything by the book. If I do something that doesn't look right, it probably isn't right. And I want to, I want, I would like to hear from you uh, and, and ask me so that we make sure that we're on the same page. That's who you want to fly with versus someone who's, you know, maybe they take so much time off if they got five weeks of leave and they, but if arrogance and or uh, insecurity can be very dangerous. So you kind of have to dig in on that. Uh, obviously we'd rather fly with a guy that has that humility to go, look, if I make a mistake, it's not on purpose, call it out and let's stay on the same page. Yeah. I often say, if I don't hear a briefing from the captain within the first, you know, few minutes after we get settled and set up our nest on the flight deck, I'll usually go, Hey man, I got thick skin. Anything happens while we're flying together, speak out, wake me up, hit me in the arm, whatever you got to do. Uh, if it's not the way the company wants us to fly their airplane, then yeah. I'm doing something wrong. Please point it out to me and I'll be happy to adjust it. And I'll do the same for you. And that usually yeah. is kind of like a wake up call. And then they go, Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll, I'll give you my brief too. Yeah. I'm the same way. And and my favorite sure. brief, though, is when they go, everything's by the book. Uh, a lot of things aren't in the book. So when it's not, uh, we'll do it my way. And uh, everything on oh, the side yeah, of the airplane is mine. That's, <laughs> Those that's are usually the captains are wearing a hat, aren't they? <laughs> the hat wearing <laughs> The captains. trifecta. Hey, I, yeah, wear, yeah. I wear a hat, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I know. I just say that for fun. But I, <laughs> my, favorite, yeah. my favorite thing I've ever heard. So, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively senior uh, captain at the time at Sandpiper, uh, the airline that the regional that we we use as an alias there. And uh, I came into the cockpit one day and the FO turns around. He's a young man. And he goes, oh, two out of three ain't bad. Uh, I'm sorry, what? He's like, trifecta, two out of three? You know, you, you only have two out of three. You're, I guess you're not bad. Like, what the hell are you talking about, man? He goes, trifecta, you've never heard of this? I'm like, no. He goes, if the captain wears the hat, he has silver hair and he has a mustache, He's an asshole. <laughs> I didn't have a mustache. Yep. Yeah. So I was yeah. I guess so I wasn't an asshole. You were safe. You were safe. <laughs> yep. You're safe. Well, recently we found out that President Joe Biden tapped retired airline captain Chelsea Sully Sullenberger, best known for his starring role in a real life ditching later made into a TV movie to lead the US mission to the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO. Sullenberger and First Officer Jeffrey Skiles ditched U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in New York's Hudson River in 2009, notably with no loss of life after geese knocked out both engines of their Airbus A320 shortly after takeoff out of LaGuardia. The events of that day made Sully a household name, and he has put star power to work as an advocate for aviation safety and aviation overall. In 2017, Sullenberger spoke out against air traffic control privatization, helping to kill a proposal that would have endangered the future of aviation. Upon Senate confirmation, Sullenberger will be the 18th representative of the United States to serve on ICAO, 
the international body created by the United Nations in 1947 to harmonize aviation standards and regulations worldwide. Captain Sullaberger certainly understands aviation and its global reach, and the United States ICAO would benefit greatly from his experience, knowledge, and leadership. This, a quote from AOPA Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Advocacy, Jim Kuhn. And this is from an article in AOPA magazine from September. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, I mentioned this because I wanted to get, gentlemen, all of your take on this. Is Sullenberger, a well-respected captain by most, a good choice for this? Or is this more of a star power appointment? What do you think? Well, I mean, it sounds certainly he does carry star power, you know, with the the story and everything. But um, if he is wanted to be part of this thing, then that's not a bad thing, in my opinion. I mean, he's, he he uh, certainly uh, demonstrates a consummate professional. He was a very professional uh, type pilot, very by the book. Uh, it's something even our airline is talking about now: um, standardization. And so that you can recognize deviation from uh, normalcy quickly because everybody's doing the same thing. And uh, I think it's kind of cool if he wants to kind of transfer that mentality into um, the civil aviation program, the young upstarts and get them started right. You know, it sounds like a good deal. And Roger? You know, I don't know enough about the position to really have much of a, an opinion on it. Um, you know, I, I think maybe I'll feel forever closely linked to Sully, even nobody, even though nobody realizes why, because of my own incident in the same year, um, and having my, my little, I don't know, input on Sully in, in relation to what happened to me. I kind of, you know, I'd agree with what Mark said, you know, if, if this is something that he wanted to do, I don't see how this can be a, a bad thing. He, he is retired. He keeps cropping up, you know you know, he's best known for his miracle on the Hudson. He's, he's only known for the miracle on the Hudson. Um, and that's not a, that's not a bad thing I, either. It's, you know, hopefully this is something that he wanted to do and is not being, you know, yeah, thrust into something that he, he didn't want to do in, in his retirement. Well, he a presidential appointment, I'm sure the president or his staff contacted him prior to make sure that it was something that he wouldn't turn down. Cause that would, and I would hope so, but, when optics, you, but, you know. but also when the president calls you and say, hey, you know, I'm the president of the United States, and I was really hoping you'd do this for me, who's going to say no? And, well, I got a podcast going on, and that takes up a lot of my yeah. time, but, you know. <laughs> my wife wants me at yeah. home. I've been, you know, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. You're absolutely um, but, right, But, you know, Roger. if it's something that he wants, if he wants to do, I, like I say, I do not think that it can be bad. He obviously um, handled his, you know, world-famous scenario with, yeah. with Grace. And professionalism, I think, you know, that's great. And, and hopefully he can bring that to this position. But like I say, I would hope that it's something that he really wants to do and didn't feel, you know, like, like it was something he had to do because he was asked by the president of the United States, I guess. For those listeners that might be new to the podcast, uh, what Roger was referring to about his connection with the Miracle Flight is all explained on Flight 8 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 7th of November, 2019. It was the first time I had Roger on the show, and we did an in-person interview speaking about his journey. That one was entitled Surviving Furloughs, Bird Strikes, and Bad Schedules. On that show, Roger speaks of 
a bird strike incident that he had descending over Sholo and his single end or a single pilot operation on a beach 99. Now, and what is it? A seven, eight pound Western grape went through the windscreen Jeez. and practically scalped our friend here. Uh, it took him out. I mean, he, yes, it did. he explains it was a near death experience and he survived. He survived by remaining calm. He survived by a lot of adrenaline <laughs> and he landed that aircraft safely after declaring an, a significant emergency. And the photos of that event are haunting. I often share them uh, in conversation. Uh, and for those that are interested, the photos are on the, the website on aviatortony.com, Alpha Victor. The number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee.com. And under the, uh, I believe it's under the guest book tab down, you have to scroll quite a bit down because episode eight was a while ago. Um, and you can see that there. I encourage you to give it a listen if you haven't listened to episode eight or flight eight of Squawk Ident. Um, and Roger explains exactly what he went through. His connection with Sully, what was that, two weeks after the event? My what? incident? Yeah. No, my incident hit uh, solely was in what, January, as I recall. Mine wasn't until November. Oh, okay. Um, so but it was all in the same year, and bird strikes obviously were a, were a pretty big thing. And I remember hot topic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a hot topic. And, you know, I think that's partially, maybe partially why it got some of the media attention that it did. Um, you know, I, my airplane was on the front page of the USA today. And that's kind of my, my big claim there. You, you know, nobody cared about me. But, you know, the airplane was a great shot, yeah. you know. Oh, it's impressive. And I just, uh, you know, the president has not um, called me to offer me any positions. <laughs> so rest assured, the aviation community is still safe because I am um, still only minorly involved. That is a See, gross oversight, Roger, and, and we will. And there's my input. Can. I was going to say the president <laughs> probably had to consider quite a few, um, yeah, sure. you know, uh, recommendations uh, from, you know, from higher ups and they didn't recommend you. Yeah. They uh, never Roger. contacted me. I, you know, yeah. I'm not really sure if I even made the list, give them a chance, Joe, you, but, give them uh, a yeah. chance. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I never even got the interview. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Rob and I coming from legacy airlines, you know, we have our opinions. I have nothing but respect for the man. I've read the book. I've, you know, he actually did something great. Uh, regardless of the Monday, Monday morning quarterbacks that I have met over the years. There are those pilots over at Legacy Airlines that don't care for him very much, simply because of some of the words and actions he took after the event. I think all that media does something. Um, and both he and his FO shared some words with the media that were not very flattering for regional pilots. So there are, there are a lot of those that were regional pilots at the time that went, wait a minute, what did you just say? Um, yeah. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think that it's a good thing that he has a role where he can be involved with IKO. Um, I, I look forward to seeing what happens uh, if he gets the job. The short version, Mark, since you kind of did ask and they blew you off, the short version of that is I took a bird yeah. through the windshield, through the windscreen, right at my yeah. face. Yeah. And it just barely missed you. No, it hit me. Oh, geez. It, it flat came through the windscreen right in front of me and yeah. blew off my glasses, blew off my headset, the oh, blood man. everywhere. 
And you can't tell um, it's yours or the birds. That was it. Yeah. I didn't know what was mine. I didn't know what was the birds. My, I, I remember after, cause I never saw it coming. Um, so I thought, I thought I had honestly hit another airplane. Jeez. I didn't know how, but yeah. Um, what else do we at? 11.5. Wow. Uh, although that was five or 6,000 feet AGL because it wasn't a mountainous area. So I will say oh, that. Oh, okay. Wow. But um, still at 11.5, I didn't, you know, what was I going to hit? And I remember, you know, putting my hand, my head hurt and I put my hand up and I thought like half my head was gone because there's just a bunch of, I realized after the fact, blood and guts everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no glasses, wow. no headset. Yeah, that'll get your attention. Yeah. yeah. Um, and was able to, you know, obviously get the plane down, but it was, it was not good. I sent the link man? to your phone. Just check it out. Oh, cool. You get a chance. Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. Dude, that's scary. Here you go. Yeah. And it was the same year as Soli. And so there's this big old. Oh, there you go. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Damn. Oh, my gosh. Old thing. Yep. Dang. That's what my, that's what my head and face looked like. I think. That's not the bird's guts. That's that, that was Roger. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's one picture like a little too farther, like off to the right. You can kind of see uh like where my head would have been. There's oh, like this outline yeah. of blood and Oh guts. yeah, yeah. I don't think <laughs> I have oh, that geez. one. Oh man. Hey man, and then, then all the you know, air ripping in there and you're disoriented and you're trying to figure out how do I get this thing on the ground. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, it's like it's it's amazing. Like I couldn't figure out looking out the front right windscreen i had i couldn't figure out where i was like i'm used to looking right in front of me and i'm like just yeah. looking over there I, I didn't know where i was and of course we didn't have G, like, G, gps yeah. and so i'm fine i'm using an ndb and an adf to try and find this oh <laughs> like, man. this airport in, 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 in an altitude airport train. yeah yeah. In a train. yeah that's scary dude yeah that's uh, yeah. yeah roger's our uh yeah our, our uh podcast hero man he's yeah, he's Sully thing. Plus. Yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> I Sully, Sully Plus. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, they asked me about Sully and some of the, the AP and the interviews, and I almost kind of put my foot in my mouth. It, it kind of in relation to what you know Tony had touched yeah. on and some of the things he had said after. Yeah. And then I quickly backtracked because like I don't want to be on the record, like literally yeah, in this I've, interview with the Associated Press discouraging sure. Sully. This probably can't play well for me, but I've heard a thing or two where he's been, you know, decided he was going to have an opinion that was, was not well taken, but yeah. I, I do commend him, man. He was a, he was consummate professional. And I, my thought is that he had thought through that scenario several times in the past, because I, I just don't think you, it, 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 as it's happening, how quick he made the turn uh, and said, we're going in the Hudson. He, I think he had thought that through in his mind before because uh, man, he missed that one bridge by just, couple hundred feet and, and, and that's one of the things i don't know how that all played out just but from my personal experience it's amazing what the adrenaline like that rob you know rob i think it was mentioned it the, how much adrenaline will do for you like yeah. how focused it's amazing how calm and how focused i was despite what had happened and i only know that because after i landed I was a complete, I started bawling on the runway as I was turning off. And then by the time I got to the ramp, yeah. cause I was like, well, I might as well get out of the way. I couldn't even figure out how to turn the airplane off. Like, yeah. I was like, I'm, how do I turn the, how do I shut the engines off? And yet in the air, I can totally see it. Yeah. it was, it was all like, oh, I got to put the gear down. I put the gear down way early. Cause like, look, I don't want to forget to put the gear down later. And it's not like I need the speed right now because I was actually worried about the rest of that windscreen dislodging and killing me. That's, 
was something yeah. I thought about. So I was going slow and I put the gear down, like everything was really calm and, and progressively thoughtful until I was on the ground. And then I was a complete mess. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I well, you felt that. safe on the ground. You were no longer. I on knew I was going to live. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, th- and then I was. Let lost. it go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Rod- well done, Roger. Roger. You know, yeah, you're man, our hero. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank you. for sharing that again. Um, and I encourage uh, yeah. the listeners, if you haven't heard uh, Flight 8, go back and take a listen. It's it's quite inspiring. Now, Mark, you know we've, we've had the privilege of speaking with you um, and your experiences and your, your ideas on leadership and, and how important that is, really, as an aviator out there on the line. Because if you stop and think about it, what is it that pilots do? I mean, it's not driving a bus or driving a car. It's, it's so much more. You have so many languages that you have to become proficient in. The language of aerodynamics, the language of talking to ATC and clearances and regulations, the language of your company's uh, operating manual and the rules associated with that, the language of the FAR limitations. And I mean, we're just scratching the surface here with these examples, but you have to become proficient in these items. But being proficient in what you need to do as a pilot to fly and operate an aircraft safely is only a part of what would lead to a successful career and a safe career. And we've talked about the leadership and everything associated with it and how really there are more than words. There are examples of personality that you have to give off. Now, in your time, where you are today, I mean, anyone listening would, would say, man, talk about success, mentor, leader. But imagine yourself knowing everything you know now and you go back in time and whisper in a younger, your own younger self's ear. What would you tell yourself? It, uh, that's, that's a deep one. You know, that's a, <laughs> could I go back? I, you know, I wouldn't want to change my experiences. Uh, I, I would think that I would be... Uh, not necessarily more motivated, but more uh, maybe er- focused earlier on things that could be beneficial later. You know, for for me in high school, I treated that as a, a social experiment and uh, didn't study. Uh, I felt like I was a genius because I never took a book home, but I still pulled a C plus. You know, but um, <laughs> but uh, later in college, uh, I got more serious about studying, and I realized how much work extra I had to do to catch up with what I blew off in high school. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those standard deals. I study harder kind of thing. Uh, it would help. I mean, and some people uh, are know from five years old, they're going to go fly. I knew I loved to watch aircraft and I thought it was a great career. Um, but I wasn't focused to, to say, this is what I'm going to do until a little later in life. So, um, now, you know, when, when the industry got shaken and you go, Hmm, uh, I may have to consider some other way of making a living here if, mm-hmm. if this goes bad, which it did go bad, but we're recovering. Um, that was just kind of a reiteration that uh, how much I actually do love this job. I mean, it's it's uh, what a privilege to be able to do it. But um, yeah, I mean, just maybe looking back and, and being focused on that, what you want to do. I, it's a hard one to say because I think that people go through life experiences and they're all almost necessary in the shaping of what makes each individual um, successful or not. 
it's almost like a fingerprint. You know, it's like when you were uh, applying for an airline. You talk to all your buddies in all aspects, whether it's FedEx, UPS, or any of these other airlines that you were maybe interested in, and you got their opinions. And um, you get to a point where you ask them questions that they can't answer. It's because it's so individualized. It's like a fingerprint. You know, one of these ways is going to fit you best, and you just have to discover that. So it's it's hard to say. Uh, go back 20 years and do these things because it, it, you do have to evolve. And there's so many different things that happen that, that shape who you are. Yeah, very yep. well said. Probably pretty convoluted, I guess, but... Uh, yeah. No? Okay. Uh, I, I just got one question, I guess partially from my own from my own past and for any aspiring aviators specifically related to the Air Force. Um so my dad was act, my dad was a physician or yeah, he was retired, but um, the Air Force paid for his medical school and I was born cool. in Travis. So I lived in Guam. I always loved flying on the airplanes and I was I was like kind of like you. I like flying. I, I got into it as a career later on. Um, I, I actually didn't ever really look into the Air Force because of my glasses that I've been wearing since fourth yeah. grade. What is the um, for any aspiring aviators that were thinking of possibly about the Air Force? Do you know what the uh, current the current restrictions are for vision on, on whether you could become an air force pilot or yeah, any other br- know, branches on, um, with corrective lenses, basically. Right. I know they've relaxed them. Uh, the, the hard part, I, I couldn't spot out what the, you know, the minimum requirements are now, but sure. I know, I know that you, you at one point you had to be 2020. And that's I think it. that's what it was when I was kind of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they've relaxed that. And the kind of the hard part is getting in because it's funny, you know, once you, once you get accepted in the pilot training, then, uh, you know, all hell can break loose, you know, and they'll be like, whatever, you're, you're already in the program and they, they work with you however they can. Right. But I think that you, I think you can have uh, um, corrective lens surgery now in, in on the Air Force time as a pilot, which I would have probably been unheard of before. Um, the good thing about the Air Force in any military is that they're all written in uh, regulation, but they're a rank structured system. So if you can find the right person to support you, uh, who's willing to go through it, it might take a lot. I mean, you might have to go to the secretary of the air force, but there's an avenue. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if assuming you 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 can get to a certain uh, level course, that they yeah. can accept. Yeah. But, um, but I'll tell you from, from my personal experience, you know, I, I applied uh, when I got into the air force, there were very few uh, pilot slots available. It was a, it was the spigot was off. You know, there, there was academy graduates could have been number one in their class uh, for a pilot slot, but they weren't available. So they would go banked pilots, what they call them. So they worked for two or three years on another job before they brought them in. They were overloading pilots and trying to cut. So I applied from within, uh, flying a Cessna around and trying to gain some hours and apply. But I applied four times. So one time denied, Second time denied, third time alternate, fourth time success. So uh, if I was going to put a theme on it, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, regulation for eyesight or whatever, or whatever is your impediment, persistence, right? Persistence is the key because I I got the support of my squadron. I got the support of uh, those around me knew what I was trying to do. And I worked really hard to keep that support. And then, therefore, I had a squadron commander advocating for me and signing for me, and um, four tar- four tries. You know, I mean, it was it was actually the last one. I have to admit, it was uh, 
I've done everything I can do. And my age requirement was about to kick. Yeah. And I was like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, you know, but I, I've done this for now, three years th- and four. Trials. If I remember that story, I think you actually had, were on a brand new assignment to Hawaii when you got the news, didn't you? I was, yeah. You're I was sitting on the beach months. or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I had a pretty good gig. I was, uh, I was new to Hawaii. So I was staying at the Halekoa, which is like the, you know, a military hotel. On the sixth floor, watching the sunrise and sunset, you know, and in this new job, and I'd already turned in all that paperwork, and I was like, "Look, whatever happens, happens." But I was in a pretty good spot, uh, had a good job, and uh, the colonel, who was a communications colonel, uh, sitting across the desk, somebody said he called me in for a meeting, and I rolled in there, and he said, but, "Sir, what do you need?" And he said, uh, "Got some paperwork here for some pilot training." I, I think I was on top of his desk. I was like, "What's it say? What's it say?" You know, and he's. <laughs> He, he said, I said, does it say alternate? Does it say actually? He's like, wow, well, she's fumbling the paper. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And it turns out I got it. And they supported me again because I left their unit the six months into it and left to go wow. to pilot training. So yeah, that's how it worked. That is so cool, dude. So pers- <laughs> persistence. Yeah, it was, it was worked out. Yeah. Don't give up. You know, if that's what you want to do, I'll tell you another dude I flew with may or may not be in this uh, airline. Um, <laughs> he had a, he had a, <laughs> He had a bad accident and flying for Japan Airlines and at his house, he had this accident. He's trying to fix the garage door uh, and those big springs, one snap and it totally jacked him up. Like he, it, it took an eye out and uh, removed part of his thumb. And like, this guy is a hardcore flyer. So he's like in the hospital, still out of it. He's trying to determine from the doc if he's got enough thumb left to work the trim i'm like dude all right so he's a he's a hardcore flyer but he went through a lot of medical and faa stuff for uh probably two years and he's back in flying and uh, ready to go so persistence on his part and uh and i was like are you kidding me he's like yeah i'm not kidding he tapped his eye it was like a glass eye (laughs) It's like, oh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you can fly like that. There you go. But, uh, you know, that guy, that guy was persistent and, and uh, here he is. He's a, he's a captain. Wow. He couldn't what? land worth a, da- a damn, but, uh, you know, <laughs> right he was sounds good. like he could never give you the thumbs up to do anything anyways. Right. Not, it was, it, it was looked pretty normal. Actually. He was, he was oh, just okay. worried about it at the time, but uh, apparently that almost killed him. It was just crazy. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, yeah. I think I know the answer to the next question is what advice would you give a young aviator in relation to today's marketplace in aviation? Yeah, that's right. You know, the, well, the, the, the community is short, you know, they need aviators and, uh, that's mm-hmm. not changing. And then of course the retirement age at 65, uh, it's going to be there. I started out really humble with that, uh, a Cessna 152. And the, I, the reason I, s- uh, secured my seatbelt is because I felt like I could knock that door open or punch through it with my elbow, but, um, little plane <laughs> on, on a, a 1700 foot runway, uh, you know, humble beginnings. It, it, it's, it's just persistence. And you have to, if you, figure out if you love it, you know, go try it and check it out. And if it's something you want to do, don't stop. You'll, you'll, you'll have the opportunities. Nice. Mark, if I could have you think back to a person in your life that has made the greatest impact to your success in aviation and in your career, who would that be? Yeah, I would say without a doubt, it was my dad in the respect that, uh, you know, I grew up with him flying the whole time. But I didn't appreciate what all he was about until I got the perspective uh, at officers training school. So 
you know, I watched him, uh, he flew aircraft. I saw him fly maybe twice. You know, it's hard to kind of see your family fly, yeah. but I saw him fly an F-106 once over the house. And then he flew an F-15, which we saw a Finney flight where he came in and landed. I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, but, you know, he never uh, drove at my, me, my brother or my sister, uh, what to do in life. He just kind of led by example and, you know, I realized he was working long days and all that kind of stuff, but he just never really complained about it. He just went and did his thing. And it wasn't until I was at officer's training school where I said, he said he was going to come to the graduation. And I said, dad, they want you to send some kind of bio, a bio because you're coming down to this thing. And uh, what's that? He goes, oh yeah, I have one, which I was surprised to hear him say. I was like, oh, you know what this is and you have one. Okay. Uh, but it was because he was a colonel and he was a VIP and they wanted to have his bio. And so now I'm going through officer's training school and I'm getting ready to graduate. I read the bio and I'm like, whoa, you know, there's a, a distinguished flying cross on here. And there's this just incredible career. And that was an EB-66 as a navigator. So I started asking him questions, you know, like, what was that all about? But uh, apparently uh, they got tracked by a couple of MiGs um, and they were in a defenseless aircraft. They're a radar jammer. And he was the navigator. So they dove, knew all they could do is get down into the mountains and the valleys. And he had to, on the fly, navigate them through there safely, uh, not to pin themselves into a corner and burn those jets out of gas before they could shoot them. So they got a distinguished flying cross for it. But just um, it all came together and saying, hey, look, all this, even more so because he didn't talk about it. It was a boy. He's just totally humble and he has this incredible career. And so I was inspired by that. And so he instilled some of those values. I, I hope I, I always said, if I had half the career that he had, I will have considered myself to have a very successful career. So uh, definitely my inspiration there. And my mother too, she was, uh, we were in uh, the education wise or school. We were actually in a couple of college courses together while we were in Europe. And it was funny. She was just getting back into school. She'd grind and just work on these things. The only, the only study and I was doing is if she had questions and it, it just was impressive to me how, how much effort she put towards it. So the two of them were great influences, no doubt. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that with us. Um, always an inspiration to hear answers to that question. And yeah, your, the fact that you can recall and they made such a giant impact on your aviation career is, is, is quite nice. So thank you for sharing that. Um, as our flight is drawing to an end, we would like to thank all of you for coming along on this journey with us. I also want to express a very special thank you to Colonel Mark Furman for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to hear his thoughts on leadership, to hear about his journey, and about all the people that have helped him along the way. Please help us out by sharing this podcast online with your friends. Make sure to follow and subscribe to the Squawk Eyed podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. We also love receiving listener feedback. You can send us email or even audio feedback via our website at www.aviatortony.com. Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you'll find audio archives of the Squadcast, photos from the flight line, our guest book tab, and our Squawk Ident pilot shop where you can find an assortment of t-shirts hats mugs and much more a small proceed from all those sales goes towards helping finance this podcast and keeping it going you can also contribute financially right from the homepage. facebook youtube instagram users can find us under squawk ident podcast also a big final thank you to rob d and captain roger for joining us today and i'd also like to thank you 
for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, everyone. See ya. Hey, man. Hey, thanks for hosting. Yeah, it was fun chatting with you guys. Appreciate it.